So good evening. So I went to, um, some of you know that I went to Sri Lanka last November, and I feel like the effects of that are still kind of playing out. But um, I may have mentioned this in some earlier talk, but one of the highlights for me in, in that, on that trip was to visit a very old monk whose name was Venerable Katakurunde Nyanananda, which by the way means the bliss of higher knowledge. It's a very beautiful name. And um, he, he was said to be highly realized, and certainly his presence was very powerful. But uh, at the time I saw him, his health wasn't so good, and so you could literally only see him for about mm, five to seven minutes, and because uh, there's a bunch of people, and then the monks that are taking care of him kind of move you along so the next person can come. But nonetheless, um, I felt like uh, in the whole month, that's, those five minutes are what stand out. And so I'm, I'm saying all of this um, also as a, just a preamble because um, his health really wasn't good. He died in the third week of February. And so I thought I would say a little bit about his teachings this evening. Um, you know, as sort of a way of honoring that. So one thing that I appreciate about him is that he was considered a somewhat radical teacher in that he, you know, he, since he was a monk, he was, that part of his job as a monk is to um, uh, teach within the understanding of that lineage of, of monks. And so, you know, there's an understanding of the teachings that those particular, you know, those, that ordination will, um, that he's expected to teach. And he didn't. He didn't agree with all of that, and so he would teach in a slightly different way. And so this is considered a little bit scary for a, you know, a conservative monastic tradition. And so he, was, he actually had a little nickname of being called the Heretic Sage, which I like a lot. Uh, the Heretic Sage. Yeah. And... Um, Yeah, there's another monk talking about him, another monk who went to visit him, and he said, he's an outcast. His critical analysis of Buddhist texts and the unwillingness to adhere to the commentarial tradition has made Bhante Nyanananda a radical and a heretic. And he had the support of his teacher in doing this, and even gave a series of lectures about, uh, about Nibbana based on his uh, somewhat radical views. But then um, his teacher, and he was criticized for this, even though his teacher had given him permission to do this and was encouraging him. But uh, then his teacher died, and so he ended up leaving and founding his own monastery. He left on his own, on his own accord. So I'm, um, you know, I'm not a total expert on his teachings, but I have read some of his books, and I took a course last year also based on that series of lectures that he gave with the support of his teacher that expressed some of his views. So I can say that a strong theme running through his teaching is to consider very carefully the way in which the mind fabricates experience, its own experience. So how we use 
in particular concepts and how we get wrapped up in concepts at everywhere from the everyday level of you know psychological projections and our you know the way that we interpret things coming in all the way down to very subtle levels of the way um, the mind is grasping at experience in order to uh, to put together the world essentially so this goes down to um, really profound levels don't worry this isn't a detailed philosophical talk Um, in fact what Nyanananda was talking about could be explained through fairly everyday language and he he did that in his books Uh, he often used kind of interesting analogies so I thought I'd read a little story from uh, this one called The Magic of the Mind. All of his books, by the way, are online, or at least the ones that have been translated into English are online at a website called uh, www.seeingthroughthenet.net. <laughs> Seeingthroughthenet.net. Do I need to speak up? I might be speaking a little bit quietly. The, the, I know the sound system isn't uh, always working very well, but we'll do our best. Okay, so this, um, this book about the magic of the mind has um, a little prologue that's about a magic show. Um, so the magic, actually the magic show refers to consciousness, but we won't go into the philosophy of that. But he tells a little story that is, I think is interesting because it has a little twist to it. Okay, so follow along here. The famous magician whose miraculous performances you have thoroughly enjoyed on many an occasion is back again in your town. The news of his arrival has spread far and wide, and eager crowds are now making for the large hall where he is due to perform today. You too buy a ticket and manage to enter the hall. There is already a scramble for seats, but you are not keen on securing one for you have entered with a different purpose in mind. You have had the bright idea to outwit the magician, the magician, to play a trick on him yourself. So you cut your way through the thronging crowds and stealthily creep into some concealed corner of the stage. The magician enters the stage through the dark curtains, clad in his pitchy black suit. Black boxes containing his secret stock and trade are also now on the stage. The performance starts, and from your point of vantage, you watch. And as you watch with sharp eyes, every movement of the magician, you now begin to discover, one after the other, the secrets behind those breathtaking miracles of your favorite magician. The hidden holes and false bottoms in his magic boxes, the counterfeits and secret pockets, the hidden strings and buttons that are pulled and pressed under the cover of the frantic waving of his magic wand. Very soon you see through his bag of wily tricks so well that you are able to discover his next surprise well in advance. Since you can now anticipate his surprises, they no longer surprise you. His tricks no longer deceive you. His magic has lost its magic for you. The whole affair has turned out to be an empty show in some sense. And so you turn away and take a peep at the audience below. And what a sight! A sea of craned necks, eyes that gaze in blind admiration, mouths that gape in dumb appreciation, the ahs and ohs and whistles of speechless amazement. 
How is it, you wonder, that I've been deceived for so long by this magician? So the show ends. Crowds are now making for the exit. You, too, slip out of your hiding place unseen and mingle with them. Once outside, you spot a friend of her, of yours, whom you know as a keen admirer of this magician. Not wishing to embarrass him with news of your unusual experience, you try to avoid him, but you are too late. Soon you find yourself listening to a vivid commentary on the magic performance. Your friend is now reliving those moments of the bliss of ignorance which he had just been enjoying. But before long, he discovers that you are somewhat mild and reserved today, and wonders how you could be so after such a marvelous show. Why, you were in the same hall all this time, weren't you? Yes, I was. Then were you sleeping? Oh, no. You weren't watching closely, I suppose. No, no, I was watching it all right. Maybe I was watching it too closely. You say that you were watching, but you don't seem to have seen the show. No, I saw it. In fact, I saw it so well that I missed the show. So it takes a little turn, doesn't it? And the, um, the implication, there's a number of themes there, of course, right? Is that the, the implication is that, you know, we are not seeing things as they are. You know, what's being shown to us is not its actuality. And in our everyday life, like the sea of craned necks in the audience, we get caught up in that. And we're, we're all too happy to be fooled. There's a deliberate... The, the reason it's a magician that everyone bought tickets for is because we're, there's an element of wanting to be fooled by it in some way, even though we think we don't. But we sit here and we get pulled into the ups and downs of our emotions, of the dramas, of our stories, of all of that. And there's a way, the implication of the story is, there's a way to see through that and to understand what, um, what this flow of life is doing. And that that allows us no longer to be fooled. And you know, then there's maybe a moment of awkwardness where you know, we've seen so clearly how this works and um, somebody else is caught in the drama. And you may have already had this experience as a meditator. You know, you've developed some mindfulness, some equanimity, and there are moments where you feel like calm from your practice. You know, something goes on and uh, you're not upset about it and somebody else is getting very caught up and very upset. And then, you know, there's wisdom and compassion in um, helping them with, with their struggle. But the, um, the point is that we have this ability and that we don't, we don't have to choose to be fooled. You can also check if it stirs up some uh, feelings of discomfort. Sometimes people worry that practice is going to turn them into somebody who's boring and bland and can't have any excitement anymore. And I suppose you could hear that, if you're worried about that, you could hear that in this story. Oh no, nothing's going to be fun anymore. But um, I don't think that's the implication. I don't think that's the implication, but I'm going to leave that one unaddressed for now. Since we're honoring people who have passed away, uh, I also have a quote from Stephen Hawking, who died about a week ago. 
who said, the greatest enemy of knowledge is not ignorance, it is the illusion of knowledge. Yeah, so the magic show, right? Now in Buddhism, of course, he's using ignorance as a Western scientist. He's using ignorance in the Western sense of the word, which usually means stupidity or just, you know, sort of not having awareness, not not having understanding or knowledge of something. And that's basically what the Buddhist definition is too. But I would say that in Buddhism, ignorance is the illusion of knowledge. It's the same saying it's what we what else do they say it's not what you don't know it's what you know that ain't so (laughs) right same thing so this is bringing us then into the realm of perceptions and views you know how it is that we're seeing things do we see something as an exciting interesting magic show how cool how did he manage to cut off his own hand like that or do we see through that and say okay you saw him slip his hand you know into his jacket pocket first something like that. But the, um, the point of that is that in our practice, we can consider our view of a situation to be one more element that we practice with. So for example, we practice to develop mindfulness, or maybe you're practicing to develop concentration, or metta, or equanimity. You have things that you're working on, in a sense, or things that you've decided are relevant or interesting for you at this time. And so one more realm is to consider our way of seeing a situation as a realm of practice. There's a nice quote from the Dzogchen tradition that says, trust your experience, but keep refining your view. So when we take under consideration our way of seeing, our vantage, our view, our orientation as a way of practice, we're not saying that we're going to distrust uh, completely what comes in. That's, you can go too far and, and say, okay, you know, I thought I saw that, but you know, it's, I'm sure it's wrong, etc. Um, no, you know, they're seeing, they're hearing, they're smelling, etc. Those things are, it says, to, to be trusted. Trust your experience, but keep refining your view. So understand that the way you see those things is not final. It's not, you haven't reach the true capital T view, capital V. We haven't, um, we can keep changing it and keep refining it. So there are a lot of different levels to play with views as a practice. And I think, again, this isn't obscure. I think many of us have worked at a, um, an everyday level with our view. For example, um, how many have heard of the idea of reframing, (laughs) reframing a situation? I see some nods. This is, among many, um, one mode that's used in psychotherapy, of course. You know, you come into the therapist and you say, here's the situation, and here's what's happening, and here's how I feel, and here's what's, you know, what I'm worried about. The therapist says, okay, you know, they don't, they, they take all that as trusting your experience. Yes, that's happening. And let's see if we can reframe that. And so you, you know, talk about other ways to see it. And often it's possible to relieve uh, some suffering through uh, reframing, through th- seeing things differently, particularly in cases where you don't have a lot of control over the situation. You know, say you have a diagnosis or somebody else is, um, somebody you love has a situation that you can't totally affect, then reframing is really helpful or it can be very simple. You know, for example, we can 
if somebody is angry with us, we can consider maybe they're having a hard day. You know, maybe they just found out that one of their loved ones has a terminal diagnosis or something, and instead of being able to address that at this moment, they're getting angry at me, something like that. Um, or maybe we would say, in the case of a, a loss or a difficult situation, well, maybe this isn't only a loss. Maybe there's an opportunity here. You know, maybe this is going to be something else opening. Related to this, this is basically changing our thoughts, right? And so related to changing our thoughts is changing our language, because they're very similar. Um, in fact, our words reveal many of our views. Probably we've all had the experience where, of talking about something, and um, somebody else that we're talking to points out something in our language that's very revealing about how we're viewing the situation, that we didn't see it. Like I was talking with someone um, a little while ago, and on and on about a particular situation, and then I, you know, I said, I don't know, I don't know my relationship to this. And they said, well, did you notice while you were describing this that you completely used the word we? in describing it. Um, so I had counted myself as part of the group that I was talking about. And it was a little bit unconscious. you know. Um, maybe it was semi-conscious, but when they pointed out that I was consistently saying, we this, we that, we that, and then I said, I don't know my relationship. They said, well, your relationship is that you're part of it, because <laughs> you kept saying we. And I thought, oh, that's right. So at that level, we can have things pointed out to us. Or we'll suddenly use a slightly negative tinged word, even though we think we're giving a fair description of what's going on. Somebody says, well, did you notice that you actually called that, you know, a problem instead of an issue or something like that? Um, there are a lot of cases where our views slip in. So then we can deliberately change our language in order to encourage ourselves to have a different view or in, her, in order to be respectful of the situation. And this also helps us to reframe and then there are views also, I'll, I'll just, it's kind of a funny example, but I, I like it I, in that I, I invite you to try it out if it works for you, is that sometimes I view myself as being the agent of other people's good karma. So what that means is, for example, if I'm helping somebody, um, it's possible, to, or being generous or something, it's possible to do that and think, yeah, I'm, I'm being generous in this moment because, you know, I like to and I like, you know, I want to help. Or why not frame it as this other person has some good karma ripening? Because when good karma ripens, that means beneficial stuff is going to happen. And so their good karma is ripening, and that means they're going to receive something good, like some help. And I have declared myself to, into the universe to be an agent of other people's good karma. If I happen to be nearby, I get to fulfill that. And so it's all, it's them. It's them who's causing me to give something because their good karma is ripening and I'm the agent of that. So it's just a little way of playing with um, how to be. It takes away all the self that might come into, I'm a generous person, I helped this person. No, it was all them. They had good karma coming. <laughs> so see if that works for you. These are these views are meant to be playful, by the way, in that I'm not saying that I literally think of myself as like you know having a 
symbol on my chest that says agent of, you know, and it's not that that's always an appropriate way to think. That's the secondary um, part of this practice is that we choose the view that's beneficial in a certain situation. So if it's useful to see something in this way, in this situation, great. And then, but if we sort of, if we apply that then in the next situation, it might not be the right thing. And so we have to have some uh, flexibility and, and sensitivity about that. So you can actually go pretty far with all practices like reframing and relanguaging and uh, revisioning, those sorts of things. But they're all basically in the realm of thought. Uh, so they're, they're pretty good, but um, the Buddha invites us to be a lot more radical. He actually doesn't even talk very much about reframing in the suttas. Um, mostly when he talks about playing with views, he's, he's already taking us to a deeper level. Because when we look a little bit deeper, we see actually that there are layers and layers of views um, and perceptions supporting the way we see the world. So not just about other people and about ourselves at a, a thought level, but even more subtly like, what am I? as a being, am I really a fixed self that has some substantial entity to it? Most of us believe that we are, and it's not wrong. There might there are times when that's the best way to see it. But is that really true? Do we, have we ever questioned that and tried to see it in a different way? Or even more deeply, um, the solidity and inherent existence of things. We tend to not question that very much. But um, have we looked at that carefully? at what existence really is, at what time really is, at what matter is, or mind. So these things invite dukkha at a very deep and subtle level, and they can't be addressed through thinking alone. They will never touch, never touch those. So reframing only goes so far, I guess is the summary. So. So there are various ways, then, of viewing situations that are likely, more likely, to start digging down below the level of thought and starting to unbind us from suffering that we wouldn't be able to get to through all those other means. And when we start to see, actually, just how deep our thoughts and perceptions and views are running through our experience, it can seem a little daunting. You know, it's like, wow, I don't even know I don't even know what all the assumptions I'm making when I see, you know, a person walking into this room. There's a lot going on just to have that perception. You know, I have to know what this space is, what a person is, what that motion means, uh, etc., and probably a bunch of other things. So, fortunately, we don't have to figure all that out. If you read the teachings, the Buddhists gave us ways of looking that will actually unfold a path toward freedom. We're not just randomly changing our views. There are particular ways of seeing that are conducive of insight. So we can learn to deliberately see in that way. But even here, there's a different view. So one view is that we're going to deliberately practice certain ways of seeing. I'll describe a few in a moment. Or another view that you'll also hear is that this is actually a natural process unfolding by itself. We're not doing it. 
Um, and, but we can get in the way if we don't understand. And so we need guidance and teachings to know how to get out of the way of a naturally unfolding process. That's also a valid view. Don't worry too much about which one is right. So some of these, um, I'll go through the first few of them somewhat quickly because we've actually talked about them before in here not too long ago, and they're also talked about fairly often. So the three common views that we're asked to adopt or perceptions that we're asked to practice are anicca, dukkha, and anatta, which mean impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. You may have heard of these as the three characteristics, right? Which they are. They are called that in the teachings. But it's interesting to note that earlier, in the earliest strata of the teachings, they're called the three perceptions, actually. So they're, it's a, think about the difference. If something is a perception compared to a characteristic. So a characteristic already implies that there is an object with properties. A perception much more brings in the role of the mind in what it is that we experience. I actually like that earlier term a little bit better. So the perception of a Nietzsche, of impermanence, is something that the Buddha is very clear that we should cultivate. Luckily, this is easy. Does anybody doubt that things are impermanent? No, everybody knows that. Even if you don't practice, you know that. And yet we don't know it very deeply, necessarily. Right? We haven't examined that completely. But at least it's intuitive enough, since we wouldn't doubt it at some level. So, um, so whenever possible, especially in sitting meditation, but even in daily life, it's very useful to notice the arising and passing of things, and to notice, to remember that things that are here will pass eventually, and new things are going to come that aren't here. We're not stuck with only this. There's going to be new things coming. And to watch that process, and to notice uh, the endings of things, as well as the beginnings, we tend to only see when things are coming. And once they're going, we don't notice them. I was just on a retreat where one of the retreatants is herself a quite seasoned Dharma teacher. So it was very nice to sit with her. And she asked the monk who was leading the retreat uh, if seeing impermanence is necessary for liberation. Um, it's an interesting question. I mean, and he knows, he knows that she's a teacher. And so he, could, he was answering at a level appropriate for her. And he said, there must be at least one moment of observing impermanence. So in case one wasn't enough for you to be liberated, we can observe it, and we'll probably have to observe it many times. But it's interesting, right, is that when, when challenged and said, is this actually necessary? He said, there has to be at least one moment. So for sure, practice impermanence. <laughs> practice viewing impermanence, because... Uh, the implication is that's completely necessary. Interesting. And what else would be, what else is absolutely necessary for liberation? I would add seeing dependence, seeing dependency, which we're going to talk about in a moment. But impermanence is one, of, one thing you have to see. Okay, and then the second of these three perceptions is, is dukkha, uh, unsatisfactoriness, 
sometimes translated as suffering, and sometimes that's an appropriate translation, but I think in case of perception, it's, it's not so much. We would want to perceive instead the unsatisfactoriness. Often it can be seen as arising from impermanence. If everything is arising and passing and changing, and nothing is permanent, then nothing can be truly satisfactory in and of itself. You can't hold on to anything as, this is the final thing that's going to do it for me forever. Easy enough to see. How does that, how is that absurd? I mean, that's kind of a cognitive understanding, but how would we see that directly? Uh, in my practice, I look at um, tension. And that's how this dukkha is synonymous with clinging. Second Noble Truth tells us that. And so clinging appears as tension in the body. You may have felt some of that. <laughs> and tension in the mind. You know, that gripping feeling, which you can feel release, right? We've had moments where we were all caught up in something and then, you know, something opens. You can feel that mental release when we've stopped clinging to something. And so it's actually possible to take that on as a practice, especially when sitting, and just sit there and scan through. Is there tension? Yes. Oh, there's a little tension there. Could I release that? Could it be invited to relax? We do that at the beginning. I invite softening, right? That's exactly what it is. And if you do this, you know, there's the, surf, there's the body scan at the surface level, but then there's going really, really deep. How deep can you find tension in your mind and encourage it to release? And the idea is we're going to release all of it. So that's one way to practice with dukkha. And then there's anatta, not self. I'm not going to say a lot about that because um, I want to move on to the fourth, the fourth way of seeing that is actually very related to anatta, um, which is emptiness. It sort of includes anatta, but is broader to see in terms of emptiness. And this is not a a term that's very popular in the West. People think empty, void, that sounds kind of bleak, sounds kind of nihilistic. Uh, I don't think I want that. But, um, and it does have different meanings in different traditions, I will grant. So we have to be a little bit careful about that. I don't want to get entangled in philosophy or find difference between the different Buddhist traditions here. But I do want to um, frame emptiness as being essential to see to seeing dependency of things when we when we observe what conditions are required for something to be there and what conditions cause it to fall apart that's starting to see dependence so this is like the next level after impermanence right you see things arising and passing observe them coming and going great that's impermanence but then you can ask well how did that arise and why did that go away you know what what prevented that from lasting longer? Or what caused that to come together? Or if this is here, what else is here with it? These are questions of dependency, of conditionality, of, um, of emptiness. <laughs> so Nanananda was very clear that, and I'm going to read a little anecdote about that later, was very clear that understanding concepts and our way of projecting and perceiving um, at a very deep level is, very, is basically to understand emptiness. So I want to give a quote that um, maybe uses the word emptiness or empty in a surprising way. This is from Rob Berbea. 
He says, it turns out that whenever there is any experience at all, there is always a way of looking also. So that's exactly what we're talking about, right? There's a way of seeing going on. So whenever there's any experience at all, there is also a way of looking. Sooner or later, we come to realize that perhaps the most fundamental fact about any experience is that it depends on the way of looking. That is to say, it is empty. Are you surprised by that use of emptiness? Let's read that again. Perhaps the most fundamental fact about any experience is that it depends on the way of looking. That is to say, it is empty. We talked, this is not obscure, we talked about reframing. A situation depends on how we look at it. Did we see this as a loss or an opportunity? Different experience, right? It depends on our way of looking, which means that the experience does not have fundamental inherent existence as one thing. We could see it as a problem, we could see it as a loss, we could see it as an opportunity. It doesn't have any of those qualities. We can do that with our mind. It's not hard to see at this level. What gets really interesting is to take that as far as it goes, and that would be liberation. That's what we're doing in liberating the mind, is we are developing ways of looking, liberating insight, right? Ways of seeing that free the mind. So we're invited to understand what this means with emptiness. And in the interest of time, I'll just give one example, a very everyday example, to help understand the word emptiness. Let's take countries. You know, countries. We all know what those are. They're totally empty. So, for example, we all live in the United States. I don't know if everybody in this room is a citizen of the United States, but it doesn't matter. Right now, we're all living here. What is the United States? I know what it is. When I say it, you all know what that word refers to. But even just a few hundred years ago, it didn't exist. How did it come into being? Some people created it. They came together in a room and decided to make it. And here it is. But it wasn't just them. Everybody had to believe it. Everybody believes that there's a United States. That's one reason that it exists. If the entire world stopped believing in the United States tomorrow, would it exist? No. We don't believe in, name a country that doesn't exist. <laughs> name a, you know, we don't believe in that, and so it isn't here. So countries are completely empty in that sense. They're not, that doesn't mean that they don't have real impact in the world. Please take your passport if you go somewhere. Please obey the laws that are said to stand uh, as the Constitution of the United States. There are real implications of not obeying those laws. I got a parking violation out in the parking lot the other day, so that was real. Um, But it's also a convention. It's quite empty, parking rules. So, you know, there are... uh, Our way of seeing really matters. It has impact, and yet it's only a way of seeing. So... This is real stuff. When countries are real, then people can go to war over them and people die. It's very real. But consider, just as this thought thought experiment, they're all just created and the, the borders of them are created. You have to agree with other people that the border is there. We don't always agree. 
Another thing to notice about countries is that there's no such thing as a standalone, independently existing country, because a country has a border. And so uh, the only way that the United States exists is if there's something that's not the United States. Otherwise, it, wouldn't, it couldn't be defined, right? So if there's going to be something, there has to be not that thing also. And so that's another uh, implication of emptiness, is that it relies on these kinds of dualities to be there. And again, I'm maybe overemphasizing it at an obvious level to talk about countries. It's a big concept. But if you really take this very, very far, uh, that would be liberation. That would be what you have to understand, to see completely through the way our mind is putting together reality. And it can't be done through just thought. It has to be done through practice. Yeah. So um, can we practice emptiness? Yeah, we can. There are practices, actually, that um, help us see that. One of them is anatta, the not-self practice. You can literally practice perceiving things as not being yourself. This is a good thing to do. Um, and it's, at first, maybe a little bit uh, sounds abstract, but there is actually a direct experience of not-self. You can also um, have... Well, here's a quote from Mingyur Rinpoche. He talks about using impermanence to understand emptiness. So he says, Gradually I began to realize how feeble and transitory the thoughts and emotions that had troubled me for years actually were, and how fixating on small problems had turned them into big ones. Just by sitting quietly and observing how rapidly and in many ways illogically my thoughts and emotions came and went, I began to realize in a direct way that they weren't nearly as solid or real as they appeared to be. There's nothing less substantial than a thought. And yet, so much suffering. We can feel so heavy at times. But really, is there any substance to a thought? So, I promised you a little story about how this is related to emptiness from Yanananda. So this is a monk, this is a monk who went and had some conversations with him and wrote them up later. And so this other monk says to him, what would one see if one, one, if one looks at the world objectively, if such a thing were possible? So he asked, he posed this question to Yanananda. Sunyata comes the quick reply. Sunyata means emptiness. So the first thing Yananda said was sunyata. And then he went on to say, whether people accept it or not, the truth is emptiness. Thingness gives way to emptiness. Imagine there were a large box here with a label saying that the contents weigh a thousand kilograms. If I were to ask you to move it, you'd object, saying that it's too heavy for one person to handle. Let's say I somehow coax you to try. When you try to lift, it comes off almost without effort. There's no bottom to the box. The thousand kilogram sign was deceiving you. That's why the realization of the Dhamma is equated to the laying down of a burden. And the thousand kilogram sign, like the magic show, it's deceiving us in a certain way. So, a few thoughts on emptiness. Does anyone have any questions or comments? 
in that first story that you told about the person who goes to the magic show. Mm -hmm. One of the last things that he says is, I think I looked, or I think I watched too closely. Uh huh. And the word too implies maybe regret, or at least to me, it's my perception that mm. he is regretting it is interesting um, yeah I think it was because of the awkwardness of being with his friend who was so caught up um, I agree that it doesn't make sense that he would literally actually have regret because having seen through that's liberating insight and so he felt the he would have felt that well I didn't read every word of this story um, there are, he does also express um, feeling a little bit, because it was so fresh for him that he saw through this deception, he, um, he feels a little bit that he's been hoodwinked. Um, I didn't read that part. And there is actually a sutta that says that when you have liberating insight into the emptiness of the five aggregates, it's like a blind man who has been told that a, a piece of white cloth is beautiful and pure, and then he suddenly gains his sight back, and he sees that he's been given a dirty, greasy rag, and he realizes this isn't pure white cloth, like I was told, and he feels angry at the person who told him that. And so there's a little bit of a sense of, I've been fooled by my mind. Um, when you freshly, sometimes, when uh, inside is freshly seen like that, I'm, this is my projection <laughs> onto that. I don't know why the word two is in there. Yeah, but it's a good observation. Kitty. Uh, I noticed that too. Uh-huh. And I thought it was like, well, we just knew we found this. Yeah. So it's a little scary because now he has to deal with it. Yeah. That. Yeah. That's another, yeah, if you think about it, how awkward that would be. That last dialogue's kind of interesting, right? As if you've seen through. Um, yeah, and then you do have to find a, another way to live. Um, how do you stay open and friendly and like, you know, what does it take to have <laughs> big realizations and things? I don't know, like everything you thought is. There's a tremendous amount of relief from letting go of the clinging that was that was binding one into seeing the magician, the magician's show. You know, all those craned necks and gaping eyes. That's described that way in order to show that it's a state of stress, essentially, um, and of being bound up and caught up. And so the the openness and relief of seeing through that. Um, there's a sense of Control is not the right word, but a sense of, oh, I'm not going to be fooled by that anymore. Um, it actually, you know, the, the story can't have everything in it. <laughs> so um, we only see the negative part, the magician who's deceiving and then seeing through that. Um, in reality, not everything is 
um, is Mara, in that um, when that is seen through, that allows the shining forth, actually, of the heart qualities, of wisdom, of um, other very good qualities, naturally manifest when they're not held in check by the mind's clinging. Also, um, often the process unfolds. It's not going to be so quick. There are Buddhist schools that say it's you know, sudden enlightenment, etc. But you know, it's a it's it's a process <laughs> for the most part, um, and we gradually learn to see in different ways, such that it's fairly smooth, maybe with um, only a few discontinuities. <laughs> but already, if you've been meditating for a while you might be able to look back and see that something's different about the way you're seeing now. It maybe isn't like, oh, I've totally seen that everything is different than I thought. Um, but, you know, we know, oh, I don't, I don't get as riled up as I used to, or, you know, I'm much lighter around that relative that was always irritating to me or something. That just, that means you've let go a little bit. You've, you've, you're not as caught up. You're not as taken in by that magic show that's going on. And what happens? You're actually able to be more present, you're able to be more wise, you're able to pause before you speak. So there's a really good implications of not being deceived by the magic, not having the illusion of knowledge. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.